At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. How we doing, church? Are we doing good? No? Wow! That got real quick. Well, let me share the words of the great prophet Steve Martin about Father's Day. He said, a father carries pictures where his money used to be. So um, I'm starting to realize that. Man, my, my wallet, it's built with receipts that I'm hoping, you know, well, one day I'll be able to use, but rarely do if something breaks. Uh, and then I heard another quote uh, by Charles Wadsworth. He said, by the time a man realizes that his father was right, he usually has a son who thinks he's wrong. I'm getting there too. And then the great Ray Romano. He said, having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throw-up. So, uh, <laughs> guys, it's true. It's true. Uh, let me share a story, actually, about my childhood growing up. So a lot of you have heard that I was raised by a six-foot, red-headed Irish man, right? Can you tell? Right? Very Irish. There's like one red hair in there, and you're like, oh, he's Irish for sure. Okay. But then I had my five-foot... Greek mother, okay? So I tended, I think, to get her genetic code more than his. But my father, he grew up with a father who was working in factories and trying to make ends meet for his family in Chicago. Didn't have much education. And so when I think about my father and the experience he had of his father, it's immensely different. Like he grew up with a dad who was trying to make ends meet very little education, and battled alcoholism for close to three decades. And so when thinking about his childhood, it was not irregular for him to see his dad come home and, and be uh, verbally or, or belligerently um, uh, attacking the family. Yeah, I knew him as a great papa, as a wonderful man, but, but he struggled with things until later in life, where he was able to break from that addiction. And, and so when I was raised, I was raised by a father who had so many great qualities, but, but just like all of us, we did not get raised ourselves by the best fathers in the world. They're all over the spectrum. I remember, you know, road trips, my dad, when we were uh, getting in fights, me and my three sisters, he would do the stereotypical, throw his arm around and just try to hit someone. Like, hey, be quiet. One of my favorite stories is my mom, she always wears a hat. And so she always got a hat. She's allergic to the sun. And so, uh, so she brought all these hats and put them on the dashboard of the car. My dad turned around a corner and all the hats flew into his lap and he threw them out everywhere. And then he declared, there's only allowed to be one hat on road trips. Only one. And so it became an ordinance of the Dickerson home. One hat on road trips. We're like, really, Dad? We, we laugh about it to this day. And um, so I think about my father. He had his things just like the rest of us. But one thing that I knew without a shadow of a doubt is that my father, 
in, in, his, in himself, in his fallen nature, he loved me. He cared for me. And, and so in growing older and knowing the ticks, knowing what he wasn't raised with, knowing the areas of strengths, the areas of weakness, there's grace because I knew there was love. But as I age, I realize people have experienced all kinds of fathers. Whether good, decent, some of them were providers. They were there financially, but they weren't necessarily there emotionally. Some were there financially and emotionally, but they weren't there spiritually. They helped guide you into moral living, but not necessarily discipling and teaching you the word. You know, and then we had the other side where there's some who, uh, there's this trauma, there's, there's verbal abuse, there's physical abuse, there's sexual abuse. And when they think of their earthly father, they don't have good thoughts. All they think about is pain and trauma. And out of that experience, it's difficult because they haven't had that earthly father that, that they know that God has designed for fathers to be. And, and so in reality, where, where you're on this spectrum or that spectrum, we have to look to God. Because God shows us how a father cares for his children. Whether we've had a great father or, or we've had a terrible father, ultimately God is the good father. He's the right father. So maybe we're in a place where we're a father or a grandfather or an uncle or an aunt. How do we know how to be a father? The good father. That's who we look to because he shows us how a father cares for his children. And so we want to answer that question. Okay, he shows us how to care for his children. What, what does that actually look like? It sounds good on a fortune cookie, but, but what does caring for one's child actually look like? So that's what we're going to explore today. And it's important to know, and I guess I should go with saying this, is that we're taking a break from Revelation just for this week. And I want to speak to fathers. And I want to speak into this, into this um, area where I believe is needed and how to care for children. And so again, we're in Psalm 103, specifically verse 16 through 14. And if you know anything about Psalm, it's a poetic writing and it's a beautiful writing. There's a lot we can glean from it. And so in Psalm 103, King David writes a hymn of praise, celebrating the abundant goodness and love that the Lord has for his people. And so he's reflecting on this. He's reflecting on God's dealings with his people from creation to exile. And so in Psalm 103, he introduces the sequence by recalling that Israel's survival in the time of Moses was due to God's steadfast love. And so we see in this section, in these eight verses, three things that we can glean from Scripture that reveal how God cares for his children. And the first is this that we are beneficiaries of his mercy. We are the beneficiaries of his mercy. Let's turn to the text. This is what it says. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. 
The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. So we see this text, and it's the image of the love of a father to his people. And how he works that, we see in the first text, in chapter, or verse 6, it says, he works with righteousness. And a better, more, I guess, basic word to use for righteousness that we can use as a synonym is vindication, which is only one part of what God does for us. He vindicates us. He puts straight our record through his righteousness. And so you, when you see this, the Lord works with righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed, He's made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So how does the Lord love us? How does he care for us? How are we beneficiaries of this mercy? We're beneficiaries in the sense where he's righteous with us. He shows love to us as he showed Moses and the Israelites. What do you think of when you think of the Israelites in the desert? What are some things that come to mind? They're stubborn. They're entitled. They're uh, spoiled. <laughs> they don't understand what they have. They're forgetting what God has done for them. And in the midst of that, we see that God still showed them mercy. That doesn't mean that there wasn't discipline. That doesn't mean that there was not correction at certain times. Because if you've read the story of the Israelites, they were corrected at times. But if it was me, wipe them out. Let's start over. <laughs> like, man, this is, these people are tough. Let's just start fresh. But with them, he was slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He was merciful and gracious. I know we got some hotheads in this room. <laughs> some people, it does not take much, and you lose your cookies. Okay? It's double stuff Oreo cookies, you lose them, right? Got some people who, it doesn't take much, and you're angry. And so in turn, we think, okay, I get unglued pretty quick, so God must get unglued with me. No, we see in, in the text here, no, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You know, steadfast, another word for that is non-swerving, unswerving. We went to Arizona, we went up these mountains, it was beautiful near Prescott, and we were driving up, and there were hills, and around a corner, and you're looking over a cliff. You're like, oh, yeah, that's there. And, and, and you're going on this road up and down, and you're getting car sick, right? You're like, okay, okay, like, I, I can get through this. Only two more hours, right? Like, you're, you're just, you struggle with the swerves, the movements, the ups, the downs. God's love doesn't take you on roller coasters. It is steadfast. 
It is smooth. It is clear. doesn't mean that there's not going to be things that we cause to put us on a roller coaster. It doesn't mean there aren't things that will make us take a leap of faith. But he is completely consistent in his love for us. In how he cares for us. And even in the mess, as he was patient with the Israelites, he will in turn show that patience with us. And it says in verse 9 and 10, if we go to that to that slide, it, it uses the slide or the word chide. See, he will not always chide nor keep his anger forever. You know what chide means? Does anyone know what chide means? Chide is an interesting word. It's not in every translation that we see in the New Testament and the Old Testament. It, it is a word that means distress and, and a constant bickering. Right? And, and when I was in high school and middle school, one thing that was evident everywhere was there was a lot of chiding. <laughs> there was a lot of gossip. There was a lot of distress. And occasionally, the chiding would create something that we would know as a good old-fashioned fist fight. Right? It's rare that someone was just walking down the hall and someone throws their shoulder into someone like, oh, you hit me in the shoulder. Okay, let's fight. Right? No, it was... Because people were bickering, people were talking, this person that said this, per- said this thing to that person, and then eventually it's, hey, let's meet by the tree after school, or let's meet at the lockers, or let me just jump you in the hall. And you hear this, and there's always those people who tend to keep the chiding going. They tend to pour just a little fuel here or there, or a little fuel there, in very uh, uh, manipulative, quiet ways. And we see here that in the distress of the Israelites, that they wanted to live in that mess. Take us back to Egypt. Take us back. It was better there. We were loved. We were cared for. We had food, which wasn't all true. And in the midst of that, as a good father, he still took the Israelites down the path they needed to go, even though it wasn't the path that they wanted to go at times. As a good father, he knew what was best for them. He still showed them mercy. He still took them on that road because he knew what was best in those moments. I love the the verse, verse 12, when it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us? I mean, can we get an amen for that, right? Like, that he has sent our sins, our transgressions away, as far away as they can possibly be because of his love for us. And because he has shown us this kind of love, we in turn are supposed to show this love to others. Listen to Colossians 3.13. Bear with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. When I think about bearing with someone, I think almost like just dealing with someone, right? Like, oh, I got to handle that person. Like, we're blood relatives. <laughs> I'm stuck with them. Or, or, yeah, that person, we just don't jive. And so here it shows us that even if someone doesn't necessarily connect with us or they just have that gift of getting under our skin, they're still an image bearer. They're still eternal being made in his image. And as God has forgiven us, 
so we're supposed to forgive them. Again, if anyone has complaints, just remember the type of love that we've received from our, from our Heavenly Father. That He, even Himself, for all those people that we got to deal with, that we got to handle, that drive us absolutely bonkers, He still went to the cross for them. The pain stricken cross, His body broken, hanging above the earth with witnesses watching on in agony hanging on that tree. Even those individuals are redeemable through his love and his grace, as hard as it might be for us to understand. And so in turn, we are supposed to live with that posture, knowing that God has has set us apart to be distinct, to be different. Great question that I've heard is, if we asked at random 10 people about our life, would they say that we are people that extend love and grace? That we aren't complainers? That, that we bear with one another? Would that be even something in their, in their comment? So here it is. We are supposed to trade things that our flesh would want for the, the qualities that our Heavenly Father has. You know, resentment means holding on to my side of the story. When we're supposed to trade that for sympathy, sympathy tries to understand their side of the story. Maybe it's, it's hate. Hate is di- continuing to dislike with hostility. What if we trade hate for forgiveness. I love this quote about forgiveness. Forgiveness is a complicated grace that un- uncomplicates my anger and helps me see beautiful again. What if we traded that and forgave as Christ has shown us that forgiveness? What about abandonment? Ab- abandonment means I'm done with you. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to talk to you again. I want nothing to do with you. What if we trade abandonment for peace? Peace says, let's let's find a way to work this out. The answer isn't just to shut people out. That's not the first answer. And just hold grudges everywhere against everyone and carry that. It is peace. It is freedom. It's sympathy. It's mercy. It's being slow to anger. Listen to 1 Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Comes back to what we've been saying. We do these things by the power of the Holy Spirit in us because these are qualities that we are called to possess that we're called to live by fruits of the Spirit. As it says, even in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient. We're called to be patient. We probably can't do that in ourselves. That's the Holy Spirit that needs to do that in us. We are called to be kind, to not envy. We are called to not boast or be proud or keep records of wrong. 
What if God kept all our records and said, when we messed up, hey, remember three years ago when you did this? Yeah, you were a real scumbag. What if he did that? He's the only one who has the right to do it, and he doesn't. So what gives us the right to? So we look to the Father, even if we haven't had those good examples, to see how a real Father should be. And this is our God. Be tender-hearted as God is tender-hearted. Be humble as Christ is humble. And understand that second point of how we're supposed to live this out is we're supposed to be the focus of his love. We are the focus of God's love. Look what it says in verse 8, in verse 11. He will not always, uh, 8b and 11. Can we go to that? Uh, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. See, that? there's that word again, steadfast. Abounding in unswerving love. He's not taking you on the roller coaster. He is who he was when the earth was created, and he's the same God today. You know, I already talked about my grandpa. What about my nanny? <laughs> my nanny, she's the one who put up with him for 50 years. <laughs> and so I'm thinking about it. And my papa, he turned his life around late in life, right? He, he definitely t- took a 180. But behind him was an amazing, godly woman who stayed true to her commitment. I asked my dad once, I said, man, wh- why did nanny stay with papa? Because she made a covenant. She made a union with him and God. And she was so kind and gentle-hearted. She was the one who, who didn't say potato. She said potatoes. <laughs> or pillow. It was pillars, right? Like, you need pillar? Want some grants and biscuits? And, and so I think about her. And she showed these qualities to her husband, which made a big difference on him turning his life around. He was amazed. Like, how could you be this way when I am being so destructive and, and, and toxic and hostile? It was all because of Christ. And so I think about us this morning and how we're called to love in this way, this steadfast unwavering love. And I know there's people in here, maybe you chose not to have kids, maybe you have more grandkids or adopted kids, or maybe you're an aunt, and you're just that one of those main figures in the home uh, for your nephews and nieces. Wherever you are in this, I truly believe this saying, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. You know, again, if we want to change this world, go home and love your family. Go home, love them, care for them. And if you know you've fallen short, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. 
The question is, are you willing to make those changes in your home? To make the priority where it it should be? Because as a father, we we see that the Heavenly Father, we are the focus of of His love. Our kids, our nieces, our nephews, our grandkids, they should be the focus of our love. They should be our attention. And they need it. And so as we are the focus of his love, we are also the recipients of his compassion. As it says in Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Compassion. That's one of those words we've heard it maybe 10,000 times. But compassion is something people struggle with. They really battle with. Even in the Old Testament, God had chosen a nation, a people, the Israelites, to be his possession. He gave them a mission. He showed them grace and favor. And they turned to elitism. They turned to entitlement. And he could, again, easily wipe them off the face of the earth. But instead, he showed them compassion. He, he still cared for them in their elitist, entitled state. And usually the people who we should, or we feel like we should have the least compassion with, are usually the people that God is calling us to have the most compassion with. <laughs> that hurts. Usually the ones who we believe in our flesh should be the recipients of our fists and our words are usually the ones that God wants us to still have compassion on. I I can't do that. I can't accomplish that. In, In myself, in my own sin, I can't do that. He can, though. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. If we try, we'll fail. We'll be a miserable replica. But he can in me. His Holy Spirit in me can do those things, can accomplish that. And so I think about where where we are called to show compassion. is isn't just the people we get along with, the people we like. It's usually the people we don't. Those TV personalities that believe the polar opposite views of us and are challenging truth, the politician who is, you know, politicians in their own realm, you know, the person who's supposed to love you but has used your love for them and abused it, the person who took advantage of you, who lied to you. You know, we think about sinners, and yeah, they're sinners, but no, they're more than that. They're sinners. They have it coming for them. But until people die and go to heaven, we're called to do whatever it takes for them to know Christ. Whatever it takes. That's the great commission. And so in this, when when we see that these people 
are, are sinners. <laughs> Guys, God loves them. And as fathers, as looking to our heavenly father, who knows our frame, knows the, the hairs on our head. Some of us, we have a, a couple fewer than others. We're supposed to extend that love and understand that we have an enemy that loves to create relational conflict. Of course he wants to keep people divided. Uh, of course he wants people to not have healthy relationship. Of course he wants fathers to fail. If you're a father in this room, Satan wants you to fail. He would love for you to fail. In your home, in your marriage, he would love that. Because you strike the dad, you strike the father, the household starts to hurt and crumble. We're designed to have that communal aspect in the home and understand that we will have our own issues. We will have our moments. But we serve a God. We serve a father and the Holy Spirit and, and Christ who show us what it looks like to be seen, to belong, to have security, to have purpose. And we in turn are supposed to relay this into our homes, into our communities, our life groups, our workplaces, and bless the world because of the man, men of God that are there. And we all know one of, those, one of those guys, one of those great fathers. Maybe they're sitting right next to you. Maybe they've already went to be with the Lord. Maybe there's someone that you admire and you look to in your church. But whoever they are, they, as God has shown us that we are beneficiaries of his love and mercy. We get to be beneficiaries of those around us. So men, fathers, remember what it takes, what is images of what we are supposed to possess as men of God. As we look to the father as him, as the ultimate example of what a dad should be. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you so, so much that we are able to see these amazing examples. And even though the enemy wants to use relational conflict to, to break up the home, to break up relationship, we know we serve a God that, that fights against the works of the enemy, that has overcome the works of the enemy. So, Father, I pray right now, let us be people that look to the right father, even if our earthly father has failed us 10 times over. Let us never forget that we are the focus of his love, the focus of his grace, the focus of his truth. Pray this all in your name. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.